Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. If you would, stand and join with me as we pray together this prayer of illumination. Eternal God, in the reading of Scripture... May your word be heard, in the meditation of our hearts, may your word be known, and in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be displayed, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading from Jeremiah 29, 1-14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, I'm Damien. I'm one of the pastors here. And first of all, we just have to give credit where credit's due. I'm glad Ryan practiced that passage this morning because those names will sneak up on you. It's one of those passages where you read it and you think, oh, I don't know how to say these names. Great job. Great job. Well, this is a passage that may be familiar to many of you. I think it's familiar to you because while uh, we haven't preached on it regularly, we have referred to it regularly. This is one of those passages that has deeply formed 
the vision, the theological vision, and therefore the stated vision of New City. Ryan already mentioned that our vision here at New City is to see Orlando flourish by filling it with people who say, follow me as I follow Jesus in all of life. Not just some of life, but all of life. And we don't just want some people in the city, we want to fill the city with these people. So some of the language you heard. You heard Ryan mention it, but then you heard it in the passage. The phrase in verse 7, seek the welfare of the city, sometimes is translated flourish. Also, our language of filling, you can see in verse 6, of multiply there. And so, of course, in this case, Jeremiah is talking of physical reproduction and multiplication, but also, of course, we understand this as spiritual multiplication. We want to call, form, and send disciple makers. And we want to fill our city with people who say, follow me as I follow Jesus in all of life. Every fall, we take the four weeks before we start our Old Testament series, and we reflect on our mission and vision. And this year, we're going to do it, as I said, by reflecting on the same passage, Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14, for the next four weeks. I'm preaching the first and the fourth, and Ben is going to preach the second and the third week. Jeremiah 29 is not only influential to us, but it's influential in the Bible when we think about how are God's people to live in exile. Maybe another way to say it is, how are we called to engage the world around us? How are we called to be distinctive as the people of God, and yet in the world? Sometimes people will say, how do we be in the world, but not of the world? Well, there are some key similarities. Um, We won't talk about the dissimilarities, which of course there are between Jeremiah 29 and our culture, but we're going to pick up on a couple of similarities that are true of us, that were true of Jeremiah's time. And one of them is the basic fragmentation that's experienced when you find yourself in exile. When you find yourself in a place that is pulling you away from the core of who you actually are. When you're experiencing life in a certain way all around you, and yet in your heart you're called to love something that you don't see. Well, that's our situation too. It's, it's Jeremiah's time and it's our time. You see, this idea of exile helps instruct us that when we are in exile, when we are being pulled in various ways, there are all types of trials, temptations, and traps all around us. We find ourselves in exile in a world of fragmentation where we're being pulled apart in various directions. And I think we all feel that strain. We all feel the strain of what does it mean to be faithful as parents? What does it mean to be faithful as next-door neighbors? What does it mean to be faithful as bosses or employees or simply people that are passing another person on the street? What does it mean to live distinctive lives in exile? What does that mean for us? Well, when we look around, we see God's goodness everywhere, don't we? But even in the midst of God's goodness and his beauty, we understand that when we experience beauty, we also must guard our hearts. We're experiencing beauty, but we're also guarding our hearts in exile. And the reality is all of us sometimes make mistakes. All of us sometimes fail to guard our hearts as we should. All of us fail in a proper, distinctive, and faithful interaction with the world around us. And the particular temptations and traps we experience 
are almost always in line with what we find most natural or most comfortable to us. So some of us are reserved, and so we're tempted to withdraw from the world. Some of us are assertive and energetic, and we're tempted to dominate the world. Some of us are prone to fear and safety, and so from that place, we're tempted to attack others. But all of these realities shape the way we lean into the world. So it'd be good for us to reflect, what is our temptation? What is your temptation? Do you seek to dominate? Do you seek to withdraw? Do you seek to assimilate? In other words, do you seek to become like the world around you? Well, today in our passage, we're going to reflect on three principles that help us see how we can live faithful lives as a marginalized community for the sake of the world. Okay, three principles. The first one is, in order to do this, we must know our place. We must choose our posture. And the third one is, I forget, let me look, we need to set our hearts. Don't worry, I'll remember by the time I get there. So know your place. First one is know your place. Here in our text in Jeremiah, what we find in 28, chapter 28 and 29, is Jeremiah interacting with the people who have been sent into exile. There are some false prophets who have been trying to tell all of those who have been taken into exile, hey, listen, God's going to save us really soon. So what we need to do is we need to circle the wagons, we need to disengage, and we need to wait because before we know it, God's going to restore us to dominant power. God's going to take us back to our land. He's going to destroy the Babylonians. We just need to hunker down and wait. Well, Jeremiah in our chapter writes and says, from the Lord, that's not from me. That's not actually what's going to happen. You're going to be there a while, but let me tell you how to live faithfully in exile. The way that exile often worked, and in this case it worked, is that in this case, the Babylonians would go in to Jerusalem and they would take most or many of the cultural elite. They take the best, the brightest, and the smartest. And rather than one strategy would be to simply inhabit and dominate the people, the way that they choose to go about it is to take this best and the brightest out and to take them back to their homeland and to try to get them to assimilate into their culture, right? So they don't dominate as much as they just take the best and the brightest and they assimilate, knowing that in time, that culture will eventually be erased. And the reason is, is because those people who are brought in, in this case to Babylon, will lose their distinctiveness and will simply assimilate to the culture around them. But what Jeremiah is saying is that the way forward is not assimilation. And we'll get to that in our second point. But the first thing he wants them to know is, know your place. Your place now is to live faithfully in exile. That is your place. You're used to being the dominant culture, but now you're not the dominant culture. You are the minority culture. Now we see all over the place in the Bible, we experience in our lives that context is key to discipleship. Where you are matters to what it means to follow Jesus, right? Context is crucial to discipleship. One of the Bible's major themes is that God's people are called to follow him in exile. It's one of the major themes. In fact, 17 of the prophetic books are written to people in exile. Jeremiah is one of them. The New Testament continues to describe God's people as in exile. Remember the exiles in Jeremiah that he's writing to. They were removed from Jerusalem. They find themselves now no longer in the dominant culture, but in Babylon. They move from relative comfort and security to relative insecurity. 
Okay, so where we can learn here, the principle is that we also need to know our place in exile. We need to understand that there has been a desire among God's people in our country to be the dominant force and to dominate those around them. But that's not the invitation that Jeremiah gives us. In fact, uh, I read an article a few years ago by a PCA pastor, and he set up the difference between what a Jerusalem discipleship mindset looks like and an exilic discipleship mindset looks like. Remember, the people that Jeremiah are writing to came from Jerusalem. They had a certain mindset, and they're trying to figure out what is this new mindset when we find ourselves in exile. So the Jerusalem mindset is one of dominance. We dominate. We are the dominant culture. But in exile, we have to become comfortable with being the minority culture. In the Jerusalem mindset, the idea is to build a kingdom within a kingdom, right? Jerusalem was to be its own kingdom and to circle the wagons in the midst of the other kingdoms. But in exile, we're see, we see that we're called to seek the prosperity of an alien kingdom. In Jerusalem, the expectations were of comfort and security. That's what was expected. But in exile, the expectations are actually of discomfort and insecurity. In the Jerusalem mindset, there's a very inward orientation. In the exilic mindset, there's an outward orientation. The people of God are sent into the world. In the Jerusalem mindset, the attitude is triumphalistic to the surrounding cultures. But in the exilic mindset, we have a servant attitude to the surrounding culture. So you see the distinction between what the Jerusalem mindset is and what the exilic mindset is. You see, Jeremiah's uh, audience, they're struggling with this tension. How are we to engage Babylon? How are we to be distinctive yet faithful to the culture around us? And you and I are faced every day with that same question. How are we to remain distinctive as God's people, to follow Jesus in all of life, and yet do so in a world that is different. How are we to be distinctive in a world of exile? Think about it this way with me. Any sports fans in here? I imagine that if, even if you're not a sports fan, you, you know what those are, okay? So think about sports, and you've heard of this phrase, home field advantage. You've heard of that. Why, what is home field advantage? Why is it important? Well, home field advantage, there are real psychological benefits to playing at home, okay? So everything is familiar to you. You know the fans are mostly for you. There are physiological benefits to having home field advantage. You're in the same time zone. You don't have to commute as far to get to the game or the field, okay? There are also physical advantages. I think about baseball, for example. Something as simple as the pitcher's mound, right? It's the same distance everywhere, but you'll watch a pitcher come out and try to get the mound ready for themselves. And they'll talk about not liking a certain mound or liking another mound. Or in baseball again, the, the outfield is different. Not all of the walls are simply the same. Some of the outfield walls are different. The distance is different. And so you have to physically get acquainted with where you are playing, what field you're playing in. And I'm sure every sport has its own version of that. Listen, what Jeremiah is essentially saying to the people of God in chapter 29 is, you're used to home field advantage. You no longer have home field advantage. You're called to play the same game, to be faithful and distinctive, following the Lord, but you no longer have home field advantage. Listen, this is our place too. 
we never had home field advantage. But we tend to think that we did, and we try to get back to a time when we did. But what we need to understand is that knowing our place means that we give up on the idea of having home field advantage. And we accept where God has placed us. And now, in this case, it's in North America, in Central Florida, particularly in Orlando, Florida. That this is where God is calling us to live in faithfulness as a distinct people. Now, we feel that tension. We feel it regularly. And that leads me to my second principle, which is once we know our place, and that is we're, we don't have home field advantage. We've been sent to particular places to be distinctive in a foreign land, we must then choose our posture. We must choose our posture. Look with me in verse 7. Verse 7 is a posture verse. He tells them how to live. He says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, I chose the word choose not because there is actually multiple choices. That he doesn't give them choices. He doesn't say, listen, some of you, if you're more comfortable with it, you can seek the welfare of the city. Some of you, if you're more comfortable with it, you can just sort of create your enclave and go there and forget the world until you die or Jesus comes back or whatever. There actually isn't a choice. But the reason I choose the word choose is because every day you and I must choose. We must choose what our posture will be. We must choose to engage. We must choose to love. We must choose self-giving for our neighbor every day. And that I'm calling posture. So they've been instructed by Jeremiah to have a certain type of posture. And I'm going to pull from an article that I read several years ago by a guy named Greg Thompson. On, he basically summarizes from different authors a number of ways that the church has thought about a posture of engaging culture. Okay? And remember, the reason this all matters to New City beyond simply we're called to be distinct and faithful wherever God has called us, is that our vision is to fill our city with people who say, follow me as I follow Jesus in all of life, to seek the flourishing of every aspect of the city where we're sent, our families, our workplaces, our neighborhoods. So this is why it matters to us. We need to remind ourselves regularly, if that's what we're setting our sights on, what is our posture? How are we to lean into everyday life? And so we're going to run through just four possible postures. And of course, like any good presentation, we're going to end with the right one, okay? So if you're convinced as you go, just remind yourself, oh, that's not it. I'm supposed to wait till the end, okay? So the first one is the fortification posture. And this is exactly what it sounds like. Essentially, there has been and sometimes is a posture where the whole call of God's people is only to circle the wagons, to remain vigilant, against the basic threat of the culture to the church, okay? So again, I keep using the image of circling the wagons because it's about self-protection only, okay? Now, the strength or the draw to this model is that it takes seriously the Bible's call to be God's distinct people and the warning of the destructiveness of the nature of the world around us. We all must be vigilant that we are being wooed by the idols of the culture around us. We must be vigilant. We must take that seriously. But to define that as our primary posture has a weakness. And the weakness of the model is that it portrays God's relationship and therefore our relationship as the church exclusively in terms of opposition. 
You see, you can't engage the world in exclusive terms of opposition. Every culture must be critiqued or pushed back against, but there's also things to affirm in every culture. And so if we only have a perspective of exclusive opposition, then we'll miss our calling in the world. Now, the other side of that would be accommodation or assimilation. And of course, this is when the paradigm is that, you know what, the world is a good place. And so we, we drop our guard, we, we drop our, um, I guess I'll say our guard, I can't think of another word right now, we drop our guard and we only see the world as to be affirmed. And what ends up happening is over time we look more and more like the world. Our neighbors who aren't Christians don't look any different than we do. Or to say it another way, we don't look any different than those around us. We lose all distinctiveness. And no one ever asks us what Peter said should be natural, which is that at some point people will look at you and kind of cock their head and say, what are you hoping that's different than me? Why do you make decisions differently than I do? Why do you sacrifice and love? Why do you give of yourself? Why is your life defined by self-giving and not simply selfishness? Well, if we go to an accommodation or assimilation mindset, that would never happen because we'll only look like the world around us, okay? The problem then, of course, is that the church becomes indistinguishable from its surroundings. So we don't want to define ourselves only by opposition. We don't want to lose our distinctiveness. But there is another way before we get to, of course, the right way. And that has been this view of domination. The way that the church has sought to dominate the culture. It sets everything up as a war. And faithfulness is defined exclusively or almost exclusively as winning. The phrase that we often use is culture war. Okay, so this paradigm of domination suggests that the fundamental calling of the church is to triumph over cultural enemies. In this view, the basic task of the church is to extend our values into the world against the basic threat of anyone who differs from us. Now, of course, the language, what does it sound like? It sounds like exclusive us, them, right? Well, they and us, them and, well, we, Well, this is naive, of course, because it ignores the fact that sometimes there is grace in the world, and sometimes there is sin in the church. And if we only have a paradigm of us-them, we forget that, and we don't have a hopeful realism with the world. We actually live a naive life. You see, the basic weakness of this paradigm is that it tends to view the world fundamentally in oppositional terms just named in different ways okay now this gets to the last posture I think it's the posture in verse 7 that Jeremiah invites us to and it's the posture that we as the leaders of new city are inviting all of us to and that's been a posture often called the incarnational posture okay and so this paradigm of incarnation suggests that the calling of the church us is to go into the fullness of the culture, bearing the fullness of the gospel for the purposes of God's redemption in Jesus Christ. Now, that's a lot of words. How do we say it at New City? Think about it. You've heard us say it. How do we say it? All of us need all of Jesus for all of life. All of us need all of Jesus for all of life. And we call ourselves to be formed in that way, and then we're sent 
week in and week out to where God has called us to embody this paradigm. You see, unlike fortification, the incarnational church seeks to follow Jesus into every sphere of creation. Unlike accommodation, the incarnational church not only moves fully into the world, but also retains the integrity of its God-given character, and it proclaims the gospel as we do so. Unlike domination, the incarnational church sees its movement into the world not as an angry movement of conquest, but as a hopeful movement of redemptive, self-giving love, seeking not to triumph over our neighbors, but to work for their flourishing. Now, this is challenging for many reasons, but one of them is that it just goes against our deep desire. I would imagine that many of us, when we experience the culture that threatens our very values, we we look out and we see, it seems that we see, the culture going 100 miles an hour away from kingdom values. And I see some of these things. You see some of these things. We rightly lament these things. But the call to distinctiveness, the call to move into every sphere of culture, the call in verse 7 to seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us into exile, is a call that Jeremiah gave his audience and we also are called to embody. You see, it's important for us to remember that what Jeremiah is writing into is at least as bad as what we experience. In other words, it wasn't like, hey, Jeremiah, listen, I mean, you haven't lived now. You haven't lived in 2022. Sorry, some of you kind of did this. 2022, right? You don't live in 2022. You don't know what it's like. No. You see, we, we can tend to do that. We can tend to look back and think that we have things worse than then, whatever our relative comparison is. No. No. The Bible has a hopeful realism in it. Jeremiah is not naive. And so that means that the invitation as it extends to us isn't telling us to be naive. We go into the world with eyes wide open, but we go into the world with hope. We go into the world on a mission. We go into the world with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I say that and you say, yeah, but have you watched the news lately? How are we supposed to do this? Many of you have had conversations with your children recently, just as I have. And I've had conversations with my children recently, way earlier than I thought I would need to. I'm thinking, how in the world did we get here? How am I having this conversation already? And then, of course, I, like you, probably think, when's the next one going to come? How am I going to address that? How am I not going to shelter my children, but how am I going to disciple them in such a way where they understand the good news of Jesus, they understand the calling of the church, and yet they, they have the wherewithal to remain distinctive, right? This becomes right here for us. It's not out there. It's not far off. It's right here. So how do we do this? How do we remain distinctive and yet engaged? How do we do this? Well, we're going to talk about that for the next four weeks. So today I just get to choose one thing, just to highlight one thing. And that is we need each other. And that sounds so basic. But listen, we need to be in community with a shared purpose and vision of the world, with shared practices, encouraging and praying for one another. In other words, there may be a rhythm that you have fallen into, that all of us have fallen into, where 
We, we come to church sometimes. By the way, the national average I just found out of the regular church-going member per month is, what, what number would you give? Don't say it out loud. Don't say it out loud. It used to be two. It used to be two times a month. And now, you'll like this, it's 1.6. Now, I don't know how you do anything 1.6 times. Like, I don't know how, like, do you come to some of the second time and then leave before the sermon? I'm not sure how that works. But you get my point, is that statistically speaking, the regular church-going member, for whatever reason, is dwindling in attendance on Sunday morning. Now, I don't say that to guilt you or shame you and say, hey, come listen to me talk every week. That's not the point. The point is, is that if that's our trajectory as a culture, it's really hard to imagine how we might keep our distinctiveness. For example, think about how many hours we spend at work. Think about how many hours we spend uh, with other than uh, not yet Christians, I would call them. This is good. We're being sent out into the world. But where are we being formed? Where are we being encouraged? Where are we being reminded of the story? Well, corporate worship is a key place. What did we do today? We've rehearsed the story together. We've heard from God's word. We're singing together. We're praying together. But that's not even enough. Historically, in many churches in that new city, a core part of what it means to be in this community is to be in what is often called community groups. Okay? And so, as we said in March at New City Next, we are revamping community groups, but we told you then that they're launching in the fall, and they are. We're starting New City Communities in their resurrected form next month. And so you're going to hear more about them. Does someone, does someone cheer? Yeah, that's good. I didn't, I didn't ask for cheering, but that's great. I just heard someone cheer. That's good. So New City Communities, New City Communities, our definition is they are people following Jesus together with a common purpose, pattern, and practices. It's just a way to describe what happens. There's nothing magical about this. It's very ordinary. It's the way that we're designed, that you find a people beyond corporate worship, that you gather for a particular purpose of encouraging one another, of praying with and for one another, that you engage in practices together that shape a distinctive people, and that we understand the shared mission is us sent together. You know, there's a way at the end of the service to really enjoy being a part of a people of God. And then we say, you are sent. And then you think to yourself, well, now I go out alone wherever God's called me. Wherever you are, it could feel really lonely. The team you lead, the place that you work, the neighbors that you serve. Sometimes it could feel lonely. Like, does anyone get me? Does anyone understand what it's like to serve here? Listen, part of our hope is that by not only gathering here on Sunday morning, but then gathering throughout the week with people that are engaged in a, a common purpose and practices, that you feel the community of God, that you feel the communal nature of our sentness, that we don't feel like we have to go at it alone, that we can encourage one another and pray for one another. And so again, the posture that we're called to in exile is not to try to dominate and gain back home court advantage. That's not going to happen. But rather it's to be faithful together in community and being sent out into every sphere, sphere of creation in this incarnational posture. And so that leads to the final principle. The way in which, in fact the only way in which we can do this, 
is to set our heart. So we must know our place. We're in exile. We must choose our posture. That's of engagement and incarnation. But the last thing is we need to set our hearts. Look with me here in verse 10, and we'll read through 14. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What is he calling them to do? Well, Jeremiah is calling them to seek the flourishing of the city, but he's not calling them to set their hearts on the flourishing of the city. In fact, he's telling them to set their hearts on the coming of a new city of a different city, of a city that he will bring about. You see, we must seek the flourishing of our city energized by setting our hearts on the future city. While we are seeking the flourishing of our city around us, we aren't called to set our hearts on it, right? To set your hearts on something is to give yourself to it, to give your ultimate allegiance to it. But notice that's not what Jeremiah is instructing. He's not saying give your ultimate allegiance to the city to which you are called, but to a future city. They're to set their hope on God's promise that they will dwell with him in the place that he is preparing for them, that he will bring to them in the right time, to set their hearts on life with him. That is the future and the hope that he is promising. You see, they can seek the flourishing of the city because they have set their hearts on the future plans that God has revealed to them. And how is it that we will seek him and find him, you might ask? That's what he says. How will we seek him and find him? Well, we learn later in the story that the way we will seek him and find him will be the way that God's people always have sought him and found him. You see, the key is is that he seeks them first. God always moves towards his people first. To seek God is to respond to God's first movement. It's always been this way. Quick run through. What happened in Genesis 3? You remember this? Call to mind, Adam and Eve, sin. God comes as they're hiding and he says, where are you? Inviting them to repair, inviting them back to relationship. He seeks them as they hide from him. Let's keep going. He goes and finds Noah. And then he later in the flood remembers Noah and goes and finds him again. In Genesis chapter 12, he goes and calls Abraham first to himself. Later in the story, he pursues, wrestles, and blesses Jacob. And after that, we'll see this fall especially, he seeks out and protects and preserves a little baby, Moses. And then he gives him his name, and dwells with him. Later on, he seeks out the runt of Jesse's boys and calls David. And David seeks him and finds him. On and on it goes, the writer of the Hebrews says, in many times and in many ways, God pursues until it culminates with Jesus, who is at home with God 
who chose to leave and pursue us, living a life in exile, so he could call us to be with him. He made himself nothing so that we could receive everything in him. So you see, how will we seek him and find him? How will we set our hearts on him? It will be to recognize that he's already sought and found us. You see, when we're sent out into the world, we're not sent out alone, but we're sent out with him. While we're in exile, he is with us. While we're sent, he is the one who is sending us. But he doesn't just send us and say, have fun, good luck. What does he promise at the end of Matthew? He says, behold, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. So you see, he he calls us to know our place. We are in exile, seeking the flourishing of our city. He calls us to a posture of self-giving love that Jesus himself modeled for us. But then he tells us to set our hearts on the coming kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus has established, the kingdom that you and I get to experience even now as we walk with him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you asking that you would lead us to see where we have sought to dominate. Where have we withdrawn? Where have we become just like our neighbors? Call us to repentance, but also call us to hope, to engage those around us, to offer our lives in self-giving love to those you've called us to serve. Holy Spirit, we're grateful that you empower us and that you lead us, that you give us the words to say, you give us gifts to use. I pray you give us wisdom to steward them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.